Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I, I thought I would give you a, a quick update on my children because I know that um, a lot of you have asked me about them this morning. Uh, Jed is pretty well recovered from his pneumonia, so that's a good thing. He got a, a inhaler, and uh, that helped him a lot. Uh, Zeke still has a concussion. Um, he fell and hit his head uh, on some concrete next to the pool. And uh, But we did a CAT scan, and he doesn't have any <clears throat> bleeding on his brain, and there weren't any fractures. So he was ordered to uh, lay in the dark for a couple days, which he really enjoyed um, very, very much. But he's doing better. They are now uh, with their grandparents uh, on their way to Montana and Wyoming. Uh, so the next thing they will have to recover from is grandparent-itis, <laughs> which is actually what we have to recover from when they get back. Some of you are guilty of this. You know who you are. Uh, but the passage, our key passage this morning, um, actually does, uh, it, it speaks to something that is on my heart and has been on my heart for this last week. So our passage comes from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Home is a powerful idea. Home is the place where we belong, the one place, theoretically, out of anywhere else in the world where we should be able to feel safe, where we can be ourselves, where everything is right in the world. Home should be a place that is comfortable, that is familiar, that is inviting, where you walk in and you can just breathe. No matter what kind of home you grew up in, A home is a place that all of us deeply desire. Maybe our experiences told us what kind of home we wanted to have when we grew up, a home that was just like the one we grew up in, or one maybe that was very different than the home we grew up in. We spend our lives trying to make a home for ourselves, for our children, for our dogs, for our animals. Why? Because we all want that place, that special place that is ours, the place we belong, and our hearts and souls cry out for that place, the place that is our home. I mean, if you think about it, what do we call the most destitute in our society? They are the homeless, which does not just describe, really, their physical state. What it's really describing is that there is nowhere for them to go, and anywhere they go is just borrowed space. There is nowhere that is theirs. This idea struck home with us certainly this last fall as we had to deal in a very real and tangible way with the fires that destroyed so many homes in our community. The lasting images of the homes that were lost, the conversations with people who did not know where they were going to be, those things are imprinted on our collective memories forever. How could a home just cease to be? Just this week, uh, we had an opportunity to help a family that just now is finding a place to live. 
all these months later, after losing a home in the fire. But there's more to it than even that, you see, because for those of us who are Christians, we believe that this world is not our home. We believe, and I know this is weird, that we are homeless while we are here. That the place we are living is just borrowed space. Because as the story has told us, from the time that we were separated from God in the garden, we have been living in a place that is not our home because we are away from him. Paul in his writings, he talks about the earth being a tent compared to the home that God has for us. This place is not supposed to be permanent. It is not all that there is. This is just a place that we are staying until we get to our real home, the place that God has prepared for us, the place that Jesus has gone to and is waiting for us to join him. So we live our life on this earth. We experience the blessing that God has for us and we know the troubles as well. But all along, there is something inside of us that wants to be reunited with God. There is something inside of us that wants to be reunited with God. Do you know where that place is? Home. I want to take a, a brief moment to say thank you to Ron Whitney. Um, one of these days, Ron Whitney is not going to answer his phone on a Saturday when he sees that it's me calling. But I'm grateful that he always does because I was in no shape to preach last week. And um, Ron very graciously agreed to, uh, to speak on my behalf so that I didn't have to worry about anything. Uh, Randy agreed to do the children's sermon, so... Um, I just really appreciate you guys being willing to do that and uh, that I was able to have a, a moment off. And thank you for praying for us uh, throughout the week and for checking in with us on how everybody was doing. So uh, I really appreciate that. <clears throat> it was a good, it was good. We needed a break. <laughs> we needed a break last week. Uh, so there is a special place that I want to show you. And to be fair, this place is not special to you. Um, and it's really pretty unremarkable as far as places go. Um, but this place is possibly the most important place on the planet to me. Uh, because this picture here, this is my home. Uh, this is 5445 East Hampton Way, Fresno, California, 93727. The first address I learned as a child. Um, my parents bought this house. I, I couldn't get a hold of my parents because I think they're up in the mountains and they don't get any cell reception. So I was trying to confirm these details. Um, but I'm close enough and it's not like you would know any differently anyway. Um, they bought this house in 1961 and they paid $27,000 for it. As, as, far, as far as I know, those are correct. My brother, who is 59 years old right now, was raised in this house from about uh, three years old on. Uh, they bought it right before my 57-year-old sister uh, was born, and so she was raised in this house. And it looked, it looked very different than this uh, 
when they moved into it. You can't really see everything from here, but it was very difficult to get an angle of everything. Um, uh, after a 15-year gap between births of my sister and then I and my sisters were born, and so there were then five of us living in this three-bedroom house. So my two sisters, Brooke and Bridget, uh, slept in the same room as my older sister, Beth, and my brother, Brady, had to share a room with me. And uh, But he left for college the next fall. We were born in December, and so he left for college, and so my sister... Uh, moved into the room that he was in. I'm not sure where I was. Maybe I was under a table somewhere. I don't know. Uh, kind of explain a lot. <coughs> uh, and so that's that's how we live. Now, the house, as you see it now, it doesn't look like it did um, a long time ago. It's been remodeled a few times. Uh, over to, uh, I guess it would be your right, uh, where you see, I'll just come stand up here. How about that? This area over here is now like a family room area, but it used to be the garage. Uh, and several years ago, back in the 80s, my parents went remodeled the house, and so this became the family room area. And now there's a garage in the back of the house that is full of so much stuff, you just wouldn't be able to believe it. Although you all have garages, so you probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, this house is in Fresno. And my parents have lived there for a long time. But get this, this is truly a remarkable fact. It was not until, I think, 12 or 15 years ago that they got air conditioning. In Fresno. Right? Crazy. Crazy. Um, they, uh, they had swamp coolers, which some of you are familiar with swamp coolers. And swamp coolers do okay when it's like 95 degrees. When it's 115, they just kind of don't do a whole lot. Um, they also didn't get cable until we left for college, which I don't even want to talk about that because it still makes me angry uh, even to this day. There, there used to be, over here where there's a bunch of trees, a um, bunch of smaller trees, there used to be one really, really, really large tree there um, that was just huge. It, it actually covered about two-thirds of the yard but when it was sort of in its fullness. And that's the tree that my, my uh, brother, my sisters, we all played under that as we were growing up. Um, it's been repainted. It has newer windows. It was restuccoed at some point. Um, so it does, it does look different. But once you walk inside, it's still the same place. Um, it's warm and it's cozy. It's small but not too small, unless you get everybody in there and then it starts to feel a little too small. It has the same smells, the, the, the feel of the place that I grew up in, even though I haven't lived there for more than 23 years. And when I walk in the door, it's just everything is familiar. I could probably close my eyes in that house and only fall like six times. <laughs> I've been in fancier houses. I've been in bigger houses. But this is not really, to me at least, about being a house. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention. My parents planted those two palm trees when they moved in. And so uh, that's why they are super tall now. They even rival the one at the Bethel's house. Um, and that's, that's something that's kind of neat. But this place is not a house to me. To you it is. It's a place where someone lives it's got everything that a house is supposed to have, 
But this place is not a house for me. This is my home. And you know why. Because a home is not simply a place. Uh, It is a feeling. It's a sense of belonging and ownership at the same time. Both this is yours and I belong to it. And my parents are getting older. They're... Uh, they they both are turning 80 this year. My dad has already turned 80. My mom will be turning 80. Um, no offense to anyone if you don't think that's older. But there's going to come a time in the next few years where my parents are not going to live there anymore. And I can hardly wrap my mind around that. That someone else is going to live in this house. Um, I'm already working on like my spooky sound effects and fake ghost things because if I can prove it's haunted, then maybe they'll just move out. <laughs> but I'm not comfortable with it because this is the place where my family belongs. No matter where we go, no matter where we've been, no matter what's going on, this is the place where we come back together again in Fresno at least twice a year. Don't be jealous. It just is the way it is. Now, the people of Israel, what was left of them at this point in our story were a people completely without a home. You need to wrap your mind around this for a second. They were homeless. There was nowhere that they belonged. And furthermore, everything that they had was destroyed. Israel, the northern kingdom, was carried off and scattered to the wind generations ago. And Judah, the southern kingdom, met the same fate. They were led off into Babylon and Assyria. And the last time they were home, the temple had already been ransacked by Nebuchadnezzar. It was torn down, the wall was torn down, and everybody was led off. Now, it put them into this weird place because... For all intents and purposes, they were no longer a people. I mean, there was barely anything holding them together at this point. Because if you remember, why is it that they fell in the first place? It wasn't because Assyria and Babylon were stronger. It's because they had walked away from God. And so, when they get to this place and their homes have been destroyed and they become slaves once again, the question comes to the surface, what is going to make these people a people again? Now, as you saw in the story of Daniel last week, there were some that were trying to live out their identity as the people of God in captivity. And here's what's really weird, okay? Uh, we've, we've had some rough ground, right? We've covered some very difficult things with the people of God. But as we're coming to the end of the Old Testament, which, believe it or not, we are coming to the end of the Old Testament, things start to change a little bit. The people had risen up, they had become powerful, and now they're torn completely down to the bare bones. But now... God is looking forward to doing something different. Doing something more than that. And so we have the story of Daniel and his friends. 
right? Where they're in captivity and they stay faithful to God and God protects them in these wonderful, miraculous ways. But the fact is that nothing could change the fact that they were not who they once were. They were a nation. They had a king, a capital city, and a temple for God. So who were they when all of that was gone and they had all abandoned God? When God was not within reach of them. And how would they ever become the people of God again? But as you know, if you've been here with us, or if you're just familiar with the Bible story, there is one thing that has been true over and over and over again in the story. Yes, it's that humanity walks away from God. That's one thing. And though the story may go in all sorts of different directions, and though it would seem that it has met several dead ends, it is not humanity that is writing the story. Remember this? It is God that is writing the story. And God has worked behind the scenes and sometimes created the scenes in order to keep things moving forward. But God is in control. God is in control of all the madness and the chaos. Waiting to do and to act and to bring his people back home. And God has decided at this point in the story that it's time for his people to return home. It's time for them to go back. How does this happen? Well, there are some obstacles. For one, the greatest empire on earth owns them. And why would the greatest empire on earth allow these people to go back home? Secondly, how, who are they? Like, how do they begin to reestablish themselves? Where do they even start? I mean, everything is destroyed. They haven't had a way to worship God effectively in years. So, how do they do any of this? But we have to remember something. Who wants this to happen? God does. Which means that because God wants this to happen, it's going to happen. And it happens in the weirdest of ways. Now, it's helpful for us to understand that the return to Judah, to Israel, to Jerusalem, that it didn't happen all at once. It actually happened in three different stages. And we are going to be looking at the first stage. So this first stage, uh, for about 20 years, happened. Uh, this is in the book of Ezra, basically uh, chapters 3 through 6. And during this time, a man named Zerubbabel, if you're looking to name an animal or child in the near future, think of Zerubbabel. Um, Zerubbabel was made governor of the area, and a man named Joshua was named the priest, and they had two prophets who spoke to them during this time. Those two prophets were uh, Haggai and Zechariah. So the first thing to understand is how this started. So they were taken into captivity by Assyria, okay? And around 539 BC, the Assyrian Empire was taken over by the Persian Empire, which was as big as Assyria was, Persia was even bigger. Um, and the king at the time was a man named Cyrus, which Daphne mentioned earlier. So listen to this. This is pretty crazy. Cyrus is the king of Persia the Persian Empire. And the Israelite people are slaves to him. And listen to this. 
In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. Let's pause there for a second because this is odd. Who did God choose to speak to? The king of Persia. And what did he do? He moved his heart. God did this. He spoke to Cyrus and he moved his heart. Now, if you think that's weird, listen to what happens next. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, by the way, that means it's like the proper name for God within the Old Testament. It's spelled in some different ways. So he is speaking about God. Listen to what he says. The Lord... The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Pause there for a second. We're going to do that a lot. We're going to be pausing all over the place. It's going to be madness. Whose responsibility is it to rebuild the temple? You would think it's the Jews, but what does Cyrus say? And this is super important. I cannot overstate the importance of this. Cyrus says, it is my responsibility to rebuild the temple. The king of Persia wants to rebuild the temple of the one true God for a people that don't even exist anymore. And he wants everyone who lives in proximity to these people to give them what they need to do it. Okay? Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All all their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazzar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. The whole company numbered 42,360, besides their 7,337 male and female slaves, and they also had 200 male and female singers. I don't know. (laughs) They, They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Okay, this is so remarkable and important. The king of the empire has taken upon himself to rebuild the temple. Why? Because God spoke to him and his heart was moved. 
So he sends them back. It was a royal decree from the greatest empire around that this should happen. And God gave his people very specific instructions. They were not just to go back to the place that used to be theirs. They were to go back and do what? Build a temple for God. That is the reason that they are going back, is to do this thing. And God decided, I think, to remind his people why he should be at the heart of this effort. Number one, God instructed Cyrus that a temple should be built. Number two, the people are to go and do it with the blessing of both the king and and of God. Number three, the returning Israelites are to be given gold, silver goods, and livestock. And he also gave them the articles of the temple that were taken away. So get this. These people who don't have anything, they're living in a foreign land. Some of them are slaves, some of them are not. They are sent back with what they need to do this. That should not happen. It shouldn't happen. And not only that, but they get to go back with things that were in the temple before it was destroyed. And they get to put those things back in the house of God. It's a weird thing that's going on here. But maybe it's not. Because after all, who decided this should happen? God. So God is going to make this happen. So Zerubbabel, grandson of Jehoiachin, who you may remember, uh, which was Judah's next to last king, he was appointed the governor over Judah, making him the last of the line of David to be entrusted with, with political authority. And then around 537 BC, Zerubbabel led these people back um, and they started their rebuilding mission, which was going to require a lot of labor, a lot of hard work. If you remember from the destruction of the temple, even the foundations were destroyed. So the Assyrians were serious about destroying what was left there. So they went back and the first thing they did is they rebuilt the altar of the Lord. And they offered sacrifices and it was a very emotional thing that they did, coming back to their home, offering sacrifices to God at his own altar in his own place. They could actually worship him again. And a place that was there is at an altar that was his. And then they began to lay the foundations for the temple. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. So, here's what's happening. It turns into this huge party because they have laid the foundations of the temple. However, there are those amongst them who remember what the temple was like or have been shown what the temple is like. And they see the foundation and what is the first thing they recognize? It's not as big. 
the house of the Lord is diminished. And so they begin to weep aloud while everyone else is celebrating and shouting out for joy. And it makes this huge noise, which was heard uh, for miles around. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel, who again was the governor of the area, and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esaradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the family of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Thus the work on the house of of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, so we have something really interesting happening. These people were sent back by Cyrus to build up the temple. And everyone else around them sees that this is going on. And what do they decide they want to do? Let us help. Now, by the way, uh, some of these people around were Samaritans. And this is one of the times where the division between the Israelites and the Samaritans first starts to take place. If you remember uh, anything about Samaritans, they were not allowed to go to Jerusalem and worship at the temple because they were a mix of former Israelites and people from the area around them. And so this is part of the start of that. The people that come back say, no, it's not your job. All right? So they offered to help, maybe thinking that if they got in on the process, they would have some ownership, they could be a part of this rebuilding in the area. But Israel said, no, this is our job, given to us by God and by the king of Persia, and for some reason the neighbors did not like this. And so what did they do? You know, you know what it is, like how it is. They start to talk behind people's backs. Oh, you can't trust them. They're not really, oh, they're not listening to this. You're not going to have enough to finish this. Why are you wanting to do this? You don't even have a home. Where are you going to be focusing on the temple? Like you don't need to do these things. And what ends up happening? The whole thing stalls because no one uh, knows what to do or how to get through this. They just hear what people are saying and they stop. Now, this sounds familiar to us from the rest of the story, doesn't it? Something bad happens, distracts them, and what do they do? They stop. Or they listen to something else. Um, So the Israelites got tired, but God had different plans. And God once again stepped in, and he sent his prophets to jumpstart the whole project again. So Haggai was sent to to talk to the people who had um, kind of stopped building because he wanted them to know something. So, So he went and gave them a message. Now listen to this. And the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to build the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, 
Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else on the ground. Everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and in all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of that guy, Joshua, son of the other guy, the high priest and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the message of the Lord to the people. And here's what he says. Are you ready? I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor, Son, why did they say this so many times? The son of uh, Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Okay. So, this is a very important reminder to the people of God. They were discouraged and they gave up. And when they are discouraged and give up, what is their impulse every single time? We need to take care of who? Ourselves. We need to take care of ourselves. So let's focus on our homes and we'll get back to this whenever we can. But that's a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake. Who sent them to that place? Who gave them everything they needed to do this project? Who makes them who they are? So how can they come back to this place and worry about their own home when the God who sent and gave and provided doesn't have a place to live in the middle of them? They got things in the wrong order and because they did, how did God respond? Well, fine. Everything's going to dry up. You want to live on this land? You need me to live on this land. And you're going to know that because this land is going to dry up. And you're not going to be able to provide for yourselves. Do you know what the answer is? The answer is to remember these few words. I am with you. Remember this. And if I am with you, then you will prosper. This is no problem for me. And so what do they do? They rededicate themselves to God and they start on the temple again. And then Zechariah speaks up to the people. And I love this message. 
Because they need a little bit of a reminder of this, the things that God says here. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear these words. Let your hands be strong so the temple may be built. This is also what the prophets said who were present when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. Before that time, there were no wages for people or hire for animals. No one could go about their business safely because of their enemies, since I had turned everyone against their neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. The seed will grow well, the vine will yield its fruit, the ground will produce its crops, and the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. Just as you, Judah, and Israel have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid. Let your hands be strong. Now, church, this is an emotional passage of Scripture. It's an emotional passage of Scripture, and it's emotional for this reason. God is tired of them not being his. He's tired of it. He is jealous for his people. He does not like it when they go and do other things and they live away from him. And so he says, come with me and you will grow old and die in this place. And your children and your children's children will be playing in the street. Why? Why? Because this is what God wants. But they can't just come back and build this city. Because if they do, it will not be a home. Where does everybody in your house gather when they come? The kitchen. Right? Everybody's in the kitchen. Why everybody's in the kitchen, I'm not sure. Actually, I am. Food. Everybody's in the kitchen. Listen to what God is trying to say. In a lot of ways in my house, the home I grew up in, it's the kitchen that makes it a home. If you were to remove the kitchen, we would not spend nearly as much time there. God is saying, you can't build a home without the kitchen. The place that's going to draw you together. And a home for me, God says, is the place that's going to draw you together. 
Thanks to Haggai and Zechariah's encouragement, the people returned to their work of the temple. However, they were not the only ones who were going back to work. And some guy named Tatani, the governor of the trans-Euphrates region, didn't like the fact that they were building a temple. And he's pretty sure that Darius, now king of Persia, doesn't know that they're building a temple. So they decide to write a letter. Well, the first thing they do is they go and talk to the Israelites. And the Israelites, they say, oh no, we're supposed to build this temple. Cyrus said we're supposed to build this temple. We are doing exactly what we're supposed to. And so in the book of Ezra, there is a letter from this guy, Tatnai, to King Darius, which starts, cordial greetings. Tatnai is a polite man. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid, rapid progress under their direction. So we questioned the elders and asked them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? We also asked them their names so that we could write down their names, the names of their leaders for your information. They're snitches, you see. That's what they are. And this is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding this temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because of our ancestors, but because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who destroyed the temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles from the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them a man named Sheshbazar, and he goes on and on. So he sends this letter, and clearly, this guy Tatanai, what does he think is going to happen? Here are their names. Here's what they're doing. Here's what they're saying. Would you take care of this? Right? So here's what happens Darius gets this letter, and he says, Did Cyrus actually say this? Now, I don't know. Did he? I don't know. So they go into the vaults and they look for the decree that Cyrus wrote and they find it and they bring it out and they read it and they respond with a letter. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices and let its foundations be laid it is to be 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide with three courses of large stones, also timbers. Okay, here's the best part. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tatnai. Governor of Trans-Euphrates, and, and Shethar Bozani, and you other officials of that province, stay away from there. Stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house on God, of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree... 
what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. I just love this so much. It's so great. So he puts them in his place, right? He tells them what's supposed to happen, but then what does Darius do? And here's what I want you to do now. This is what Cyrus said. This is what I want you to do. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail so that they may, get this, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this, to, this decree or to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Holy smokes. Seriously. Holy smokes. Rather than stopping the rebuilding, which Tat and I had planned to do, he jump-started it and gave them more. Oh, wait, no. He didn't do that. Darius did it. Oh, no, wait, wait, wait. Darius didn't do it. God did it. Why? Because God decided this would happen. His people would go back, that his home would be at the heart of who they are, that they would rebuild the temple, that they would offer sacrifices to him. And when other people tried to get in their way, God made those people give the Israelites what they needed to make sacrifices to God. Let me say that one more time. God made those people give the Israelites what they needed to make sacrifices to God. After 15 years of setbacks, the temple was completed in just four more years. On March 12th, 516 B.C., 70 years after the temple's destruction, a new temple was dedicated in Jerusalem, and the Lord kept his promise to his people. What do we learn from this story today? There's a couple things I want to suggest. There are so many times in our lives, where we look at the things that are going on around us and we look at the trouble that we have and we look at the opposition that we face and I get bogged down by all of that. And there's a reason why I get bogged down by all of that. The reason is that when all of those things come crashing in around me, I don't know what to do. But I have to do something. I have to fix this. I have to make it right. I have to do what I'm supposed to do. I have to balance all of these things. I have to keep all the balls 
in the air. And the more I try to do that, people, I can't even juggle. The more I try to do that, the more I fail. And after this story today, my true confession to you is that I feel like an idiot. Do you know why? Because God can do anything. God used two kings of Persia. Two. To build a home for himself and for his people. He made them pay for it. He made them supply everything. What did the Israelites actually have to do? Go home, trust God, and build. That's all they had to do. By the end of the story, they're not even gathering materials. That's all they had to do. Go home, trust God, and build. And we saw what happened when they decided things were too hard, right? Everything gets derailed. (laughs) The land dries up. They can't sustain themselves anymore. Why? Because they were trying to do it themselves. When they tried to do it themselves, they looked at everything that was in front of them and they said, what? We can't do it. Now's not the time, I guess. Let's just not build the house of the Lord now. But God wanted it to happen. And because God wanted it to happen, he made it happen. And he gave them everything they needed if they would just go home Trust him and build. But it had to happen this way, you see. Because the people of God had forgotten who God is. They had forgotten he can do these kinds of things. Move the hearts of men who have never known him. Give them everything they need to thrive. But they had to start in the right place, which, guys, is not always the place where we would start. They had to build a home for God. Because Jerusalem would never be the home they wanted if God was not the heartbeat in the middle. God's people are never truly home unless God is at the middle, the center of it all, making it happen. And the moment that God's people forget about him, lose sight of him, what do they become? Homeless. They become homeless. But we see something else about God. What does God want? God wants his people to have a home with him. Where he is the one that is making things. Understand this, church. God wants this. He wants to give it. He wants to make it happen. He wants his people to thrive and grow and be this amazing voice for him in the world. It is the cry of his heart that this happens. So I think there's a lot we learned from this story today. 
We are not looking for a house. We're not looking for a tent. We live in a foreign land. We're surrounded by people who do not care about the Lord our God. But we are still called to do one thing. To put God at the center of who we are. This place is not our home. One day we are promised we will be restored to God in the home that he has prepared for us. Amen? We will be restored to the home that God has prepared for us and all of the junk of this place will simply disappear. But until that time, we build a home for the Lord in this place. His home is with us, in us. And if we keep God in his home, then God can do incredibly surprising things in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being faithful even when we're not. God, we thank you for not forgetting even when we do. God, we thank you for being patient because we are so impatient. And God, we thank you most of all for being willing to do the things for us that we cannot do. You are the God who overcomes. You are the God who provides. And if we will be your people, you will overcome for us. You will provide for us. So God, may your home be at the center of who we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in an incredible way, we invite you to come forward as we stand singing this song together. I'm